Hello and welcome to The Nuclear View, the podcast of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we always encourage you to think deterrence. All right, and welcome into the latest episode of The Nuclear View. I am Adam Lowther, Vice President of Research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, and I have with me today Jim Petrosky, our president, Bill Murphy, a senior fellow of MIDS, and Dr. Lee Hobbs, a fellow of MIDS uh, and an excellent nuclear engineer. Uh, he's a, for those of you that don't know Lee, he's a retired Army officer. A 50, you were a 52, weren't you, Lee? I was. That's correct. So Lee uh, obviously knows a lot about nuclear weapons effects. And then I met him when he was at AFIT. So we've got a great group of folks to talk about the recently released Missile Defense Review. So let me uh, toss it over to you first, Bill. As you read through the Missile Defense Review, what, and it was, you know, it's only 12 pages, so it wasn't a particularly long Missile Defense Review. And it, you know, it came along with the national defense, uh, the national defense study and the, and the nuclear posture review. As you read it, what'd you think? Well, I thought it was uh, overall a really good uh, kind of reaching out and expansion when you're talking missile defense. And I guess my question would be, though, should it have been named the MDR missile defense review? Because when you look at it, it brings in air and missile defense. So I wondered if it would be better AMDR, kind of like the original 2010 one was BMDR, which was just ballistic missiles. Because, uh, again, what I really liked about it is how it talks about, you know, missile-related threats are rapidly expanding. Uh, you know, wide range of missile arsenals that they've expanded to include ballistic missiles, crews, and hypersonic. So they're ex they did a good job of explaining some of the different threats that are starting to emerge that we have to be more concerned about as opposed to just ballistic missile effects. Uh, they even actually went in to talk about, you know, your uncrewed aircraft systems, your UASs. And, and so oh, yeah. they, they did that. And so this is one of the document, first documents I've really seen where they did a good job of explaining how we need to look at the integrated air and missile defense. And that's why I don't know if it was even labeled the right document because it's missile defense review, but they did a good job of bringing in the integrated air and the emerging threats that we need to get after in order to have some uh, defense of both our country and our allies to help with our extended deterrence. Yeah, that's a pretty good take on that. How about you, Jim? What, what did you, what was your take on the MDR. Yeah, I'll be honest. This was the first MDR I really looked at in detail. So I was I was really happy with especially the, the opening part where at least provided some details of how the missile defense is supposed to, to work. You know, the fact that it adds resilience and, you know, it's sort of from a deterrent standpoint. And I know Curtis isn't with us today, but he always talks about how you really want to add, you know, both fear uh, into the enemy, but also doubt into the enemy. And, and it does that. So I thought that part laid it out. Um, and, and so I, I was pleased with that. And so looking at those pieces were really, were really valuable, especially when we're in this, you know, great power competition, we've got to lay out what the, what its value is up front. 
Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a good point. Lee, what was your take? Well, as I read through it, I was glad to see that it uh that it mentioned some of our strategic competitors like uh, uh, Russia and China. It laid out, you know, being a technical guy, I, I was glad that it laid out its initiative for the um, next generation interceptors. Um, I would like to have a little more detail about, you know, these all came out at the same time. Um, I sort of missed the, uh, the, the integrated piece with the other documents, like how, you know, if, as we look to reduce the role of nuclear weapons, it seemed like that, you know, the missile defense would be, you know, a good place to explain maybe how that capability would affect that. I, I thought that was one thing that was missing. Yeah, you, you bring up a good point, and, and I want to read a brief section of it on page six when it talks about homeland missile defense. It says, missile defenses can raise the threshold for initiating nuclear conflict by denying an aggressor the ability to execute small-scale coercive nuclear attacks or demonstrations. Further, the presence of missile defense defenses complicate adversary decision-making by injecting doubt and uncertainty about the likelihood of a successful offensive missile attack. And, and it sort of brought me back to thinking about, uh, if you go back to the, you know, the early seventies. So you, you were close to retirement from the army at that point, Jim. But if you remember, uh, we, we were thinking about placing all of these, ABM systems out in the ICBM fields to dramatically increase the number of ICBMs that the Soviets would have to use to attack our ICBMs. And even, you know, mathematically, statistically, if you have a 20% kill rate, you're taking the two to one ratio and you're increasing it to a four to one ratio to ensure your, your PK remains high, your probability of kill. So, even limited ballistic missile defenses can can have a significant effect on the likelihood of an adversary being able to achieve their objectives and thus increasing the uncertainty in their mind and potentially yeah one of, one of the things I, I one of the things though I think is is important there and I, I don't disagree with that Adam except for one piece anything that you say is an advantage in missile defense and development for us is also for our adversaries. And it even points out in the MDR how fast our adversaries are developing new missile technologies and new capabilities. And in fact, I, I, I was really taken aback when we said we, you know, we need to develop, and I can't remember the exact language here, but you know, we need to be able to outpace the North Koreans. 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So you talk about when I retired from, from the <laughs> army. Okay. 10, you know, when I retired from the army, we weren't worried about the North Koreans passing us, outpacing us in missiles. And here we are in 2022, bringing that into a document. How did we get yeah, there? That's a, you know, it's a good point. I didn't even think about it. I mean, Bill, what, what say you? Well, in that case, I mean, North Korea is kind of, it, it's not even just a North Korea threat. I think what my concern is, is the the thing I like seeing in here was how it talked about the ground-based mid-course defense, a GMD they talk about, mm -hmm. is going to be looking at replaced by the next generation interceptors, the NGIs they call them. And, and originally that was just going to be an augment 
was the words they'd been using as we're bringing those things on. But as, as we're seeing the technology, and that's where Jim and that might be able to talk a little bit more, but as we're seeing the technology with hypersonics, uh, you know, the ones that can do change flights, those sort of things, we got to be concerned that the current ground-based interceptors that we have, they can take care of intercontinental ballistic missiles, but they're not going to be able to, you know, defend us against these new exotic type of weapons that our adversaries, whether it's North Korea, Russia, China, are creating out there. So I think it was a good thing because they talked about how, the, you know, I think the administration went ahead and they put out what they call the competitive development for these uh, NGIs, which are the next generation interceptors. But with the way our procurement process works, I, I think the next generation interceptors may be too late to uh, go ahead and defend us against these new emerging technologies. What we have is good for a small amount, but it's not enough. And then it's also, again, not good enough to defend against the emerging technologies that they're designing to get around our current ballistic missile defenses. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And Go ahead, Jim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I want to jump on that because I had taken a note when I read this, and I, and and I, I want to point out something that Murph brought up that is really just an itch of mine from a technology standpoint, and that is that we see our adversaries developing technologies rapidly and rapidly changing them, and it takes innovation and it takes application. But one of the things I did not see in the MDR that I really wanted to see, and I know I'm a broken record because I think I said the same thing about NPR, and I probably said it about every other review that's out there, is little as little attention is provided in these documents about pushing for things like block upgrade capability, about reducing the overhead and logistical oversight in advancing and moving forward new technologies in a more rapid way and how that can be done. None of that's mentioned there. And I, I just want to put a plug in. I've seen Air Force Global Strike Command with the, you know, with the um, GBSD. They've been extremely successful in this. And it's, it's a lesson that I think is important all across these frames. And I was really surprised that nothing about logistics was in this and, and Jim, just to correct you there, you know, just make sure you understand, GBSD has a name now. So <laughs> it, 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 as an intercontinental ballistic missile, former missileer, well, always a missileer, it, it's a Sentinel. So that's one of the, the many modernization processes between Sentinel, Columbia, B-21, LRSO. But, but if you would please call it Sentinel from here on out, I'd, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. <laughs> I have been duly corrected by you, sir. Any thoughts from you on this, Lee? Yeah, so I, I think that the, you know, to get a little bit back to the threat, right? So, you know, as that, from that passage that you read, we're still looking at the, you know, primarily the uh, North Korea threat and the potential threat from Iran, which I think is a very, um, provides a hard scope, right, to develop against those, you know, what if scenarios and, and, and track their development. Yeah. I mean, the, it's a challenging idea because it's, it appears that the United States, if you just look at our development of, you know, our sort of the triad, you know, versus some of the more, you know, low yield options that we've contemplated and then our ballistic missile defenses as opposed to 
some of the Russian systems, for example, like, you know, the S 400, they're fielding S 500 here pretty soon. It, it, it looks like the Russians seem to be, you know, and they've had about 90% of their total nuclear force has been modernized. So there seem to be areas where they are clearly taking the lead. Now, in terms of air power, the Russians can't match us. And we've seen in the war in Ukraine, their, late, their jets are getting shot down pretty regularly. We, we don't know what kind of performance we're going to see out of the Chinese you know, we're not really seeing much. We don't know how good, how good their knockoffs of our, you know, our uh, low observable jets are. We, you know, there's just a lot we don't know about the Chinese, and so it sort of leaves us, it leaves at least me, wondering, in this competition to modernize nuclear arsenals to build advanced uh, missile interceptors, where that sort of balance of power is amongst the U.S., Russia, China, and then, you know, the second tier, North Korea and in Iran. And I'm not exactly sure what the answer is to that one. Well, Adam, I think one of the things you just brought up there that concerns me at times, you said the word Congress, and, and I think that <laughs> sentence. And, and so, I mean, basically, you know, ballistic missile defense, BMD, has pretty, a pretty good support across both sides of the uh, political spectrum. But the problem is Congress has been known to cut programs that many say is needed for the defense of this nation. But this is, uh, you know, I take this from, it's a a Congressional Research Service. When you look at it, they have one on ballistic missile defense. But one of the comments that I liked uh, in there, it talks about how Congress tends to cut kind of in three areas. They cut when program delays allow for opportunistic program cuts, i.e. can steal the money and put it to something else. They might be looking at cuts for long-leaded procurement components or long leads, which we are famous for in the Department of Defense. And third, they look sometimes at newer programs that aren't likely to come on to fruition. So as the the departments and the different uh, science organizations are trying to identify what we need when it comes to ballistic missile defense, so these next generation interceptors, or as we're starting to do the air integrated defense, and we're trying to identify is, is this uh, the the missile uh, MDR talks about the cruise missiles and air threats. Uh, I, I think that's something we have to be watchful of as they're trying to identify that we need these new products. And as again, you guys talked about last week, you know the the, the budget and the debt. You know, so it's we can have the the best uh, defense items out there, but we have to be able to procure them on time, on target, or they're subject to cut. And so it's just things I've seen over my decades working in, in the, the enterprise here of those things we got to be concerned with as where I try and identify the capabilities needed that this uh, missile defense review is, is trying to help us uh, roadmap. Yeah, Murph, I, I think that, you know, you, you lead into, you know, sort of back to where I was saying before, it's that it's that logistical piece but provides it as ample way of not getting it funded. But also the flip side of that is these technologies, you know, many of the technologies we're applying are new, innovative and important, but it takes time to put those onto the ground. So there has to be some tolerance for the development and, you know, study of those things. And I, I find those sort of contrary from the funding side to the innovation side, they're always against each other. Yeah, what's your take, Lee? Thanks, Jim. 
Well, as, as it goes to funding, right, and, and, you know, and what we decide to fund and the priorities for our funding, as you look through the document to get a, a little bit away from, you know, that the, the homeland where we were talking about the threat there and sort of focusing on, you know, where we gave sort of a future threat of Iran and North Korea, the, it seemed there was much more emphasis in the document placed on the, the regional defense, right? So there was a, a good a, a priority, which you know, I personally think is a little overdue, you know, uh, outlining the importance of uh, logistically of Guam. And then, of course, the, uh, the, the uh, NATO and some of the Middle Eastern, you know, integrated defense. And I guess I'm just curious on, you know, how we lead um, from one to the other, where we basically say that, you know, um, for the homeland, we're going to, you know, you know, leave a, a large piece of it to the nuclear deterrent. And then our, you know, future technologies are really focused in our, um, you know, the integrated air and missile defense regionally overseas. Yeah, that's a good point. And I, I sort of wonder if if you think back historically when the largest command in the Air Force in, you know, the mid-60s was Air Defense Command. And we focused heavily on defending against a Soviet bomber attack. And then we, you know, we eventually shut down Air Defense Command and we largely ha- have no air defenses in the United States because we we feel safe and then we rely on uh, the nuclear deterrent to deter any adversary from ever attacking the United States. So it, it goes back to your point. So I wonder in part, is it, is it at least a, a cultural, uh, you know, sort of our view of deterrence and our view that we're, you know, almost untouchable, or is it something else? And that's a question I'm not sure the answer of. Adam, at least from my point of view, I, I don't think it's the fact that we're untouchable or we never necessarily even feel safe. I think it's we react to the weapon systems that our adversaries may or may not be threatening us with. So we're actually kind of going back to the future. And you brought it up, you know, back in the 50s, you know, we had a, a strategic early warning system of systems. And so that was, you know, they, if you're not familiar with it, it was the Pine Tree Line, the Mid-Canada Line, and the Distance Early Warning. So those were up along the northern tier, I mean, the furthest northern tier up sure. across Canada. And that. But those were, like you said, designed to protect against the threat. It was the aviation, the aircraft and the bombers from World War II and then going into the 40s and 50s that Russia could go ahead and bring over the poles. So we, we devised ways to give us um, tactical warning is really what it boiled down to. So do you have the ways to have warning of what your adversaries are doing? As missiles started to be developed, the intercontinental ballistic missile and then the sub-launch ballistic missile, that cut the, the amount of time you had to react down significantly, from hours down to you know maybe an hour or less on if you got indications and warning. So we had to create the sensors and the ways to detect that. And so that's why you have early warning sites for missiles up in Thule, uh, Flyndales, England, uh, Clear Alaska, uh, for the subs along both coasts with the PayPods networks that were originally put in, because that was the threat at the time. And that gave us the time to go ahead and react to launches, potentially, figure out what we needed to do, and then respond. And so that's how we deterred by being able to react to that. Now what's happening is our adversaries are coming up with unique ways uh, to use missiles, 
with hypersonics, uh, hyperglides, uh, fractional orbital uh, systems, yeah. Yeah, the FOBs uh, and that. But they're also going back to the past on cruise missiles because we don't have the capability to detect those. So even though they take longer, that's a surprise because we don't have a way to get tactical warning on whether these are coming in. And even if we did, we don't have any ways to defend against them. So I think that's what's driving us back to the past is we have to be able to look at the threats that the adversaries may or may not utilize against us. And that's why I was really happy to see the expansion on the integrated air defense in here, because that's one area I think we need to, to kind of go back to, to be able to identify, to at least identify when the risk's coming in, to allow us to respond and, and with them knowing that calculus, that we can see it coming, we can respond, that is what helps lead to deterrence. Yeah, I, I wonder, though, are we doing more than just sort of taking a or offering a marginal effort to respond to adversary capabilities in a way that where we in the past we took them very seriously and we spent significant resources to counter adversary capabilities. I'm not sure that's what we're doing now. We're, we're sort of taking a half-hearted effort because we're nothing we're fielding. It would be an effective defense. It, it might calculate the risk or, you know, it might complicate it, but is it really a, a true defensive effort? Adam, uh, well, one piece is maybe looking at it from a different angle, and Curtis is in here to defend himself, <laughs> so I'll defend him with his whack-a-mole theory, and that is that you can put, especially if you look at the regional, the regional defenses, and and uh, and you look at it from that standpoint, you deter it a low level, you deter it a mid level, you deter it a high level, so you give you give too many you give you give too many moles for the for the adversary to have to, to, to whack at. So they won't take a shot even at the, even at the lower levels, if you will. Yeah. Thanks, Jim. Were you about to say something, Bill? No, no. Okay. How about, how about you, Lee? Are we wrong? Have we gotten this one wrong, Lee? Thank you. Um, I honestly don't have the uh, the detailed information to make a, a statement on that. Um, I, you know, one thing that um, uh, Bill did mention was the the emphasis on the sensors, and I, and I do think that that there, uh, I was glad to see the uh, the, the global emphasis and yeah. the integrated sensors, both you know regionally overseas and including the homeland to uh, hopefully because as you mentioned before that timeline. Is getting uh, is getting smaller and smaller, and anything we can do to uh, to broaden that, um, I'm hopeful that the uh, the future technologies and sensors will will um, expand that cushion. I mean, we bit. do seem to have the, uh, you know, we are the leader in the world amongst you know the our competitors in developing integrated tactical warning and attack assessment. We, we do that really well, and but outside of our nuclear arsenal, how much do we really have to respond with, you know, for missile defenses? That That's sort of my question is we, we can detect a lot of stuff. We do that better than anybody. But then our ability to respond, I think, is is pretty limited. 
Well, Adam, we detect ballistic missiles pretty dang well. Sure. But even with that ballistic missile, you don't know if it's a hypersonic. You don't necessarily know yet. And cruise missiles, I mean, go read just about anything that Commander, you know, Northcom is talking about, uh, open press, is his concerns of, and I think that's, I think there, I, I see a lot of Northcom in this, uh, because of the concerns about the air defense and what we can't see or what they think we can't see, let alone defend against. So I think that's part of the discussion. But, you know, when it comes to defense, and especially kind of go back to Lou's question on, or excuse me, Lou's question on the you know, do we need more in that? You know, you got to go back and almost look at the the con versus showing debates because, you know, I, I'm channeling my inner Curtis here since he's not here. So I'm going to bring out some of his, his deterrence theory stuff. But, you know, showing was talking about you, you don't want to create that, you know, reciprocal fear of surprise attack. And so to him, defenses were destabilizing. Because, again, you, you didn't want the adversary thinking that you could shoot down everything because of that was that reciprocal fear. But then when you looked at Khan, one of his, when he talked about extended deterrence and, and especially the nuclear umbrella and that, but the only way it's credible is if we can actively defend our homeland. Because he says, you know, at least one is type two with extended deterrence. If we're going to go ahead and shoot a weapon to go ahead and provide the nuclear umbrella to, to one of our allies, and an adversary shoots a weapon back at us because we utilized it as part of the nuclear umbrella, that we have to be able to defend against that one or two weapons. So you have Khan saying that defenses are stabilizing, but then you have Shelling who's saying they're destabilizing because then you're putting doubt in your enemy that you may be able to stop them, which then either makes them create more arms or has that. So it's, it's a dichotomy of is missile defense when you have enough to stop everything is that stabilizing or destabilizing yeah i mean it's a, it's a great point and there's a i'm trying to think of the author's name but he wrote a great book that i read here recently about it was it was all about reagan and reagan's ultimate negotiation it talked about inf but it it was also about the the strategic, uh, the strategic arms limitation talks. And one of the things is it talked about sort of the, the debate and discussion that went on within the American camp and then between Reagan and the several Russian leaders, Soviet leaders he had to deal with that, that, that very point was one of the main points that, that was discussed and this was part of the reason why the Soviets sort of feared the Strategic Defense Initiative, SDI, Star Wars, whatever anybody prefers, why they feared it so much was this idea that if you can shoot down anything and or everything, then that's that would be a destabilizing thing. And and it was a point where, you know, Reagan really sort of was confident in his position and where the Soviets were like, man, you just don't get it. And they could never sort of reach a consensus. Adam, when, when you talk about the shooting down everything, so, you know, that's sort of a, 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 a little over, over, overdrawn, but anyway, if you could, and you were a defensive person and never took the offense, you'd be in the best position to not escalate and to keep things sure. at peace. Yeah. Right. I mean, that was, that was Reagan's point. Right. Yeah. Go ahead, Lee. 
Yeah, no, and, and on that note, you know, and I, and I know I'm, I was glad actually that uh, Bill breached the uh, Schilling Con, you know, uh, uh, thought debates because as a, you know, as an engineer, a technical guy, right, I view um, really all this, this effort and, uh, and think tank and thought is the result of a, you know, a very amazing and rapidly fielding um, scientific and mathematical discovery that was then engineered into a technology that was used in World War II. And since that time, we've, you know, placed a lot of policy effort in trying to, uh, you know, keep that technology on a leash. Um, personally, you know, for coming from that perspective, I believe that, you know, that any move toward, you know, our stated goals of, you know, a world without nuclear weapons, or even, you know, continuing to reduce their role in our, um, in our, uh, in our defense strategy, then you really can't hamstring um, another technical solution that would make that come to fruition, right? And, you know, and, and in the NDR, it's stated, you know, that we depend on our deterrent um, as the, you know, as the primary defense of, of the homeland. So I, I think that, uh, you know, to your point, that if you could shoot down everything, you should at least, you know, strive for that, for that goal, because um, I think it will be a technical solution that, you know, that brings you to those policy goals not just a, you know, a handshake or a collaborative, um, effort. Yeah. Agreement. Now we're just about out of time. So I want to give each of you guys the opportunity to sort of make your closing arguments on the MDR. Uh, so Bill is, is we've had this discussion over the last half hour. Anything come to mind that you say is sort of like a, a key important takeaway that anybody listening to this show should keep in mind as they think about the MDR. Yeah, I, I would probably say it, one of the things that jumped out at me was, and this is quoting from page six, the United States will examine active and passive defense measures to decrease the risk from cruise missile strikes against critical assets, regardless of origin. And so the surprise factor from cruise missiles versus ballistic missiles uh, really can throw um, questions into decision calculus of how we're going to respond to things. So the the fact that this missile defense review goes in now, actually getting that achieved is a different story. But the fact that, again, as I started out with, that I think this really should be called the integrated air and missile defense review, that being uh uh, propagated through this documents, even though it's only 12 pages, I think is moving us in the right direction. So I'm looking forward to us actually being able to work and getting both active and passive defense measures uh, to assist us on these new, not which are old because cruise missiles, air breathing uh, threats in the future. Yeah. Good points, Jim. Yeah, I would just say uh, when we look at the triad, and uh, we, we, you read the MDR, you can't walk away without realizing how extremely important missiles are in the overall deterrence effect of the triad. And, uh, you know, you look at it from both ends, from the offensive and defensive side. And so that was my biggest walk away from the MDR. It didn't change my view, but it just really made me think about it. How about you, Lee? 
Yeah, so um, yeah, as I stated before, I was glad to see that, uh, that, it, that it mentioned a path for, you know, improving the capability um, uh, in, in more detail, you know, regionally and, and with, with our allies and partners, but um, in the advancement of the uh, NGI. And because again, I think that uh, we've got to continually keep our eye on the threat and, and keep our technological edge in order to, uh, to, to keep a strong deterrent. And it's all integrated. Yeah, great points. Great points. Well, gents, thanks for uh, another great show. As always, it was it was an interesting discussion about the missile defense review. I, I think there's certainly more we could we could say as we discussed it. We never even got around to talking about the discussion about counter UAS and why does that belong in the missile defense <laughs> review. So, or the whole Guam versus Taiwan and how we're defending Guam spelled out an entire paragraph. So, yeah, exactly. So there's always more to more to talk about. And fortunately, this is a weekly show, so we always have an opportunity to have another show next week, which we hope our listeners will will listen to. And so with that, I want to thank Jim Petrosky, Bill Murphy, Lee Hobbs for joining me on this episode of The Nuclear View, and we will see you next week. This is Jim Petrosky from the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. We wish you a peaceful holiday season. Adam? Hey, thanks, Jim. Adam Lowther here. Wishing everybody a happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, an enjoyable Festivus, happy Kwanzaa, and any other holidays that may be out there. We hope you enjoy them, and we'll see you in January. Bill, over to you. All right, thanks. Hi, this is Bill Murphy. We'd like to wish you a happy holiday and hope you have a safe, secure and effective holiday season.